Luke chapter 11. Uh, Today we're looking at verses 29 through 36. Before we read God's word, let's pray together and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the light of your word. And we pray that you would shine that light into our lives today. Help us to see our sin. Help us to see Jesus Christ in all of his glory and grace. Help us to see that Jesus is the remedy that we all need. And send us away from here today rejoicing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 29. Let's hear the word of God. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Well, the issue, I should say the issues in this passage passage before us are that of evidence and unbelief. Uh, Back in uh, chapter 11, I think it's verses 15 and 16, uh, <clears throat> some people were saying that uh, Jesus performed miracles by the power of Beelzebul. And then there was a second group saying that uh, you need to give us more signs, do some more, do some more miracles. So there were these two groups. On the one hand, one group saying the power of Jesus was demonic, not messianic. But then there was this second group asking for sign after sign after sign. Now last time we saw Jesus deal with the first group leading up to this passage. And now he's talking to the second group. You see that at the beginning of our passage in verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. So Jesus is speaking to a particular generation, but my friends, this passage is incredibly contemporary. Many people speak about God in this way, don't they? He needs to, he needs to show us a sign. They demand a sign of him. I, I had a, uh, a class last week in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. It was a class on uh, apologetics, apologetics simply being a 
reasoned defense of the Christian faith, giving a reason for our hope. One of the assignments that we had is a professor asked us to give a presentation in class answering or responding to a question an unbeliever or a doubting Christian might ask. And one of my fellow students asked this question. If God exists, why doesn't he make it clear to me? If God exists, why doesn't he just give me a sign? Now, why doesn't he write in the sky, Dear Jared, I exist sincerely, God. Now, to, to, to be clear, this is an important thing for us to understand. Many people will ask these kinds of questions with sincerity. So when you say, well, God has revealed himself to us in his word. And if you want to know God and you want to understand how to be right with God, you need to search the scriptures. And so some people will hear that and they will go and they will study the scriptures and, and seek help in order to do that. But I think it's fair to say that by and large, many, many people who pose this question are really making an objection dressed up in the form of a question. Many people are actually saying, sorry, God, not enough evidence. Someone named Bertrand Russell, a famous atheist in the 20th century philosopher, someone once asked him, if you die and you find yourself standing before God, what will you say to him? Bertrand Russell said, I will say to him, sorry, God, not enough evidence. So I think it's important for us to see that's the kind of person this passage is speaking to. That's who Jesus is addressing here. They want Jesus to perform a miracle on demand. You know how uh, your cable provider today has on demand. I don't know much about this because we don't have cable. But I've heard if you missed a show, say it's your favorite show, you can come home, you can pick up your remote, and with the click of a button, you can on demand have your show played for you. People are treating Jesus like that. Miracle on demand, Jesus. Show us your power. Then maybe we'll take you seriously. Satisfy our curiosity. But you see, it's not motivated by genuine desire to, to know the words and the work of Jesus. It's motivated by skepticism and, and unbelief. And so in Luke chapter 11, it's, well, it's as if the patience of Jesus has run out. I mean, brace yourself for next Sunday because Jesus says some things that are frankly difficult to even say in public. His patience has run out with this and with these folks. And this is a growing group that is seeking after a sign. But Jesus discerns the intentions of their heart and they have, they have no intention of actually following Jesus. They enjoy the debates they, they like the controversies, they, they like the theology talk, they like the miracles that Jesus performs. They're fine kind of sitting back and say, okay, Jesus, give it your best. But they have no interest in bowing the knee to King Jesus and giving their lives to him. None of what Jesus has done so far has moved them to actually trust in Christ. And my friends, you and I know people like that. Based upon the number of people here, I would, I would say there are probably some people like that here today. And this passage shows us that there comes a point 
when the patience of Jesus runs out. Notice that Jesus says what he says as the crowds were increasing. Now, isn't that a surprising thing when you stop and you think about it for a minute? He has an increasing following. You might expect a popular preacher at that point to maybe reason this way. Okay, I see some of them are not really on board. So what I'll do is I'll just, I'll I'll keep it pretty general. Say some things that will keep their attention, but not anything that's going to offend them. But you see, instead, Jesus does just the opposite. He cared and loved about these people so much that he was willing to speak the truth instead of tickle their ears. He cared more about the truth than his own popularity. And so this passage, I think, is meant to be understood as a serious warning. But I want to be absolutely clear that the warning is not for those who have looked at the words and the works of Jesus and by the grace of God have said, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough for me. I'm I'm going to follow him. It is for those who go on hearing the gospel, who view themselves as the judge, who think they can make demands of God, who think that they are the final arbiter of truth when in fact God is. It's for the person who says, if God exists... Why doesn't he just give me a sign? Why doesn't God just give me some evidence? Well, today, I have just one main idea, and then at the end, we'll make a couple of illustrations. Here's the main idea that I want us to take away. It's simply this. The words and the work of Jesus are enough. Is there sufficient reason to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely Take a look again at verses 29 through 30, and we'll think about these for a few minutes. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, we read a couple chapters from the book of Jonah, but I want to make sure we all remember how the story goes. Jonah was an Old Testament prophet commissioned by God to go to preach to the pagans in the city of Nineveh. If you know anything about the history here, Nineveh was a city known for its barbarity, known for its corruption, known for its wickedness and and cruelty. Jonah, Jonah had no interest in going. Jonah actually didn't want to see those people saved. Frankly, Jonah wanted to see them burn. So instead, what did Jonah do? He purchased a one-way ticket uh, in the opposite direction, to get as far away from the call of God as he could. But of course you can't, you can't run from the Lord. And the Lord was there. And the Lord sent a great storm. And eventually Jonah's thrown into the ocean. Where we read into the belly of Sheol. In the Old Testament. Uh, the, the place of the dead. God was with Jonah. And God sent a great fish to swallow him up. When Jonah cried out to him. So... Jonah was in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. And after three days, the fish spit him out onto dry land. And then Jonah did go to Nineveh. And Jonah did proclaim the message that God had given to him. And the people of Nineveh did turn from their sin. And the Lord relented from the wrath that he intended. The Lord showed grace. The people were saved. They humbled themselves before God. So... So come back then. What's the sign of Jonah? 
What's, uh, what's Jesus talking about here? He says, just as Jonah was a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Well, let's try to think about this together for a minute. I think there are at least two sides of the sign of Jonah for us to try to understand. Matthew's gospel gives us a, a, a clue in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Just listen to what Matthew says there, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So at least in part, the sign of Jonah refers to the death and resurrection of Jesus, to the death and resurrection of Christ. I think a good way of beginning to understand this is People talk about uh, biblical typology. That's a, there's your fancy word for the day. Uh, typology is a way God pictured salvation in the Old Testament. It was a way that he forecasted redemption in the Old Testament through, through persons and events and places and objects. So think of, think of the Exodus event for a minute. It was a type of the greater Exodus that God would accomplish through Jesus in bringing his people out of bondage to sin. Think about King David, the well-anointed David at least, uh, going uh, to fight against Goliath. I don't want to bust anyone's bubble here, but the story of David and Goliath is not about how God is going to help you overcome your giants. David is a type of Christ. And it's about how the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. And by the anointed king's victory, the people of God would be delivered. Think about the promised land in the Old Testament and how Hebrews tells us that that, that promised land pointed to our eternal rest in heaven. And now here's David, who went down, or Jonah, who went down into the depths of the sea and came out three days later And Matthew tells us it points to the deliverance of God through Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Let's unpack this a little bit more, though. When you you look at Jonah as a type of Christ, there are several things, I think, that are worth noticing. In in typology, the the sign and the reality, the, the type and the fulfillment are both historical. Jonah was not a mythical prophet. Jonah was a historical figure, a real prophet that pointed to the ministry of Jesus Christ. In typology, the sign and the reality are are both redemptive. Both point to God's salvation. And in typology, there is is always an, an intensification from the sign to the reality. So the experience of Jonah and the deliverance God worked through him was was really just a shadow of the greater deliverance that God would accomplish through Jesus. And so as we're told here, Jesus is greater than Jonah. Think about it. Jonah was a reluctant and sinful prophet. Jesus was a willing and sinless savior. Jonah brought deliverance to the Ninevites. Jesus brings salvation to all who put their trust in him. But here's another parallel that I think is important for us to keep in mind. The people of Nineveh, they never saw Jonah swallowed by a great fish. They never saw Jonah spit out on 
dry land after three days and three nights. All they had was the prophet's word. That's all they had. So it's not just that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the earth. It's also the preaching of Jonah that foreshadows the ministry of Jesus. And I think that is also part of the sign of Jonah. Take a look at verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the sign of Jonah is the death and resurrection of Jesus and its proclamation. And so the person who keeps demanding more to the person who keeps asking for more evidence, to the person who says, if only God would give me a clear sign, then I might believe. Jesus says, a sign has been given. It's the proclamation of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ raised from the dead and he who has been appointed to judge the world on the last day. But then maybe somebody will say, hypothetical here, trying to anticipate questions. Someone might say, but I wasn't there to see Jesus rise from the dead, so I could never believe a miracle like that. My friends, how many things do you believe in your daily life that you never actually saw? And, And if you deny, I'm going to push back a little bit here, if you deny that Jesus rose from the dead, you cannot simply say, I don't believe that, you then have to offer an an alternative account of the empty tomb and the eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ risen from the dead that we have. You have to offer uh, an explanation here because you see, everyone has agreed. Even, Even skeptical scholars will agree with us that there was thought to be an empty tomb and that people believed they saw Jesus risen from the dead. So if you deny the resurrection, then you have to give an alternative explanation for the empty tomb and for the eyewitness accounts. Let me just run through some of these, mention a few of the most popular explanations that people have come up with. I think you'll know most of these. Number one, and this is actually, maybe this will surprise you, but this is the, the most popular explanation even among critical biblical scholars today. Here it is. The disciples had hallucinations. Uh, The disciples had hallucinations of the risen Christ. Okay, that's the most plausible explanation people give. But think about it. Is it really plausible to say that Paul, who hated Christians, hated Christ, hated Christianity, had this whacked-out vision of a risen Jesus on the road to Damascus? Is it really likely that James, the brother of Jesus, who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, had this vision of a risen uh, Savior and began to call his dead brother Lord? Is it really plausible that 500 people at the same time had a, a group hallucination? I mean, where have we heard of anything? There's no record of anything happening like that. Uh, Furthermore, if you think about it, this is only a partial explanation because it doesn't even take into account the empty tomb. 
It doesn't explain how Christianity could have ever gotten off the ground because here's this myth of a hallucination, a risen Jesus going around. Well, guess what? All you need to do to debunk that myth is go to the tomb. There's Jesus still in the grave. Number two, though, some people say, okay, well, maybe, maybe the disciples stole Jesus' body and made up the story of the resurrection. What's the problem there? The problem is motive, isn't it? What, what possible motive could the disciples have possibly had to make up what they knew was a lie and then to lay down their lives for something they knew wasn't true? Who would do such a thing? Who, who would say, I know, I know that we've made this up, but I'm going to give my life for it. I know it's not true, but I'm willing to die for it. No one would do such a thing. Number three, okay, maybe, maybe Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just passed out and, and later somehow got out of the tomb. I, you know, I picture this scene of the disciples overcoming the Roman soldiers and maybe a big cover-up took place. That's usually part of this argument. It's called the swoon theory, and it's, of course, absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous because if Roman soldiers knew how to do one thing, it was killing people. And in fact, if they failed to do their job in the case of a crucifixion, they took the criminal's place on the cross. They were put to death. These men knew how to do their job. Fourth explanation, and I think this one is growing in popularity today, is that the resurrection of Jesus is a legend that developed over time. So the idea is nobody at the time of Jesus' death actually believed that Jesus rose from the dead. But as time progressed, rumors got started, Some people made up some stories. Some people changed the stories and added stories. And many years later, after that generation had passed away, some people sat down and wrote down these rumors. Well, how are we going to get these rumors to catch on? I know. I'll write the Gospel of Matthew. I'll write the Gospel of Luke. I'll write the Gospel of Mark and John and so on. The problem with that, dear friends, is the dating of the New Testament documents. We usually think the Gospels are the earliest accounts that we have, but actually, Paul's letter to Galatians is the earliest that we have. Here's the kicker, okay? This is an important thing to keep in mind. The letter to the Galatians, of all of Paul's letters, if if we want to think about critical scholarship today, they'll say only six or seven of them were actually written by the Apostle Paul. Biblical critical scholarship is agreed that Paul wrote Galatians. And scholarship has also agreed that Galatians was written around 48 AD. Okay, 48 AD. Now, Paul in Galatians 1 talks about 14 years prior to that, being in Jerusalem, meeting with Peter and James. Now, do the math there for a minute. 48 AD minus 14. I'm not a mathematician, but that gets us around 34 AD. What were they talking about? Well, they certainly weren't talking about the weather. (laughs) Okay, and this idea that the gospel accounts of the resurrection are just later legends simply doesn't hold up when you read the gospels themselves. Remember how the gospel of Luke started? It's been some time. But you remember how he started off this account of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. He began by saying, I did my research. I talked to the eyewitnesses who were with Jesus from the beginning. 
In other words, he, he talked to the people who lived when all of this happened. And then you go to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul just kind of says in passing, Jesus resurrected, appeared to 500 people, and many of them are still living, even though some have fallen asleep. In other words, you can go and talk to them. You can go and verify what's being said. The death and resurrection of Jesus was not a legend that developed over time. It was a historical event passed down by apostolic eyewitness testimony. Let me give you one more. Um, One final alternative explanation. And in our sort of postmodern agnostic culture, here's another one that's growing in popularity. We don't know. That's it. We, we, We don't actually know. Further than that, we actually can't know what happened. How would you possibly prove something like a miracle? And some people will go a little bit further and say, well, Jesus couldn't have uh, been resurrected because dead people stay dead. Okay, that's, the, that's it. Yes, it, it looks like the tomb was empty. And yes, clearly people believe that they saw Jesus after being dead. But we just can't know that that actually happened. What's the problem there? It's not actually an explanation, is it? It's begging the question. It, it is actually an admission of defeat and a refusal to follow the New Testament documents where they lead because, because of an a priori assumption that miracles simply don't occur. So again, if you deny, this is the point I'm trying to push here, if you deny the death and resurrection of Jesus, you are left in a place where you have to give an alternative explanation for the empty tomb and for the eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And I've just given you five of the most popular, best alternative accounts, and they're utterly incoherent, and I think highly improbable. Let's... uh, Let's anticipate maybe another question, though. Maybe somebody will come and say, okay, yes, those explanations sound, sound a little bit crazy, but Jesus rising from the dead is even more improbable. So I'm going to go with the natural explanation over the supernatural explanation. They'll say the resurrection of Christ is even more improbable. So I'm going to go with one of those five options. Well, think about this. That's only the case if you reject the God of the Bible at the start and examine the resurrection as some kind of isolated fact from the rest of the Christian story. But if you actually examine the reality of the resurrection within the context of a biblical worldview, it makes perfect sense. And it's not highly improbable. It was actually predicted and promised. God tells us in the the Bible that the wages of sin, the consequence of sin, is death. It tells us that God is going to provide a Savior who takes the guilt and the consequences of his people's sin upon himself. It tells us that God is going to provide a Savior for sinners who, who goes even to death. Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah 53, we read about a Savior who a suffering servant who poured himself out unto death, who was numbered with the transgressors in order to save them, but who was also brought through death by the Lord to be the source of salvation and the blessing of God's people. And remember now, already in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been speaking about his death and resurrection. 
Jesus has already been predicting, I must go to Jerusalem, suffer, die, and on the third day be raised. So, if you consider the death and resurrection within the biblical worldview, it's not highly improbable. It's only highly improbable if you reject the Bible and assume a naturalist worldview at the very beginning. You've already precluded the possibility of a resurrection. But in a biblical worldview, you see the resurrection, it was predicted in Old Testament prophecy, it was predicted by Jesus, and it was promised by God as the means by which we would be saved from our sins. But then someone may say, okay, coming back though, here's the same objection. I wasn't there to see it for myself. So how can I believe something like that? I don't know if this is a helpful analogy. Maybe this is a really bad one, but let's say, uh, let's say we were... Uh, in the labor room when Emma was being born. And just before Emma was born, uh, somebody called and I had said, okay, I got to step out of the room. I'll be right back. And when I came uh, back into the room, Emma was there. <laughs> uh, and I said, okay, uh, sorry to ask for this, but uh, can we do that again? <laughs> I missed it. History doesn't work that way, does it? There's no, there's no repeat button And Jesus Christ entered into history as a man in real time and space and once for all offered up his body as a sacrifice for our sins and was raised on the third day. So God has given us the sign in the death and resurrection of Christ and there's no rewind button, there's no repeat. That isn't how history works. God has given us a sign in the death and resurrection of Jesus and its proclamation And my friends, here you are today. Here you are today, and the sign is being given to you. It's being proclaimed to you. There's this one sign, and that sign is enough because Jesus Christ is enough. Because the words and work of Jesus are enough. We don't need another miracle. We don't need another sign. We don't need further evidence. All we need is the work and the words of Jesus Christ. Christ, and here it is, dear friends, being set out, being given to you today. So given the sign of Jesus' death and resurrection being proclaimed to us, how should we respond? Two things very quickly here. First, we should respond by sincerely seeking Christ, the wisdom of God in flesh. Look at verses 31 and 32. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is a real warning, dear friends. The queen of the south, queen of Sheba, heard about the wisdom of Solomon and she came all the way to Jerusalem, perhaps from Ethiopia, to listen to Solomon. There was something about Solomon's wisdom that she understood was vital and important for her to see and hear. She, so she went to these great lengths at great expense to herself to hear him out. And you see what Jesus is doing. He's setting up a contrast between her and this evil generation. They haven't gone a long way to hear his wisdom. Jesus has come a long way to them to reveal the wisdom of God. He's in their midst. 
The wisdom of God is there for all to see. But they either attribute his power to the, to the devil or they go on demanding sign after sign after sign as if they were some kind of neutral observer. Saying, go on, Jesus. Impress us. You see, my friends, this is, this is key for us to understand when it comes to believing the gospel. It's an indication that the problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is a rebellious and unbelieving heart. And that's what we have to come to terms with. So if you're here today and you're saying, sorry, Jesus, not enough evidence. I say this, I say this with love. Stop fooling yourself. Stop playing games with Jesus. Stop excusing yourself. The problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is our heart. And so this passage is saying, be warned, because if you do not seek after the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ, then on the day of judgment, the queen of the south is going to stand up and say, you fool. Death and the sign of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ were proclaimed to you, but you would not believe. Solomon was the great wise king of the Old Testament, but something greater than Solomon is here, Jesus says. If you will not seek after wisdom in Christ, then on the day of judgment, the patience of God will run out. But it won't only be the queen of the south to stand up. The, the men of Nineveh will rise up to condemn you. That's a, think about that for a minute. These immoral, uh, cruel, vicious, horrible, idolatrous, whoring, barbaric God-haters. They believed the message when it was proclaimed to them. They, they turned to God when they heard the offer of Grace And now with more clarity, the message is going out today. And the question for you, dear friend, is will you turn to Christ or will the men of Nineveh arise on the day of judgment and announce your condemnation? That's the first thing. Seek after Christ. Here's the second thing. Ask God to help you see the light. I don't have time to do justice to these verses, but let me quickly try to summarize what's going on in verses 33 through 36. Jesus uses this story of, of a lamp. It's an illustration about the problem of this evil generation. Their hearts have not been enlightened by the true light. And so Jesus is talking here about having sight to see the gospel. Whether we have eyes to see who Jesus really is what he has accomplished through his death and resurrection. So look, look at verse 33 here to set the context. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. And you understand in a culture and in a home where there was no electricity, this, uh, th this would have made sense. Uh, you needed light in order to get around at night. So it wouldn't make any sense to take a lamp and put a basket over it or <clears throat> put it down in the cellar where it doesn't do anyone any good. No, you'd, you'd put it on a stand so it would light up the entire place. So here's the illustration. Jesus is the light. Okay, Jesus is the light. And if you don't see him, you won't be able to see anything. If you don't see Christ, your heart 
will be dark. You will be filled with darkness. If you cover him with a basket or stick him in the basement, uh, your heart will be dark and you won't be able to see anything clearly because he is the only source of true light that can shine through your eyes and enlighten your heart. That's what Jesus is saying here. He, he shows you your need. He shows you your sin. He shows you the gospel. He shows you that he can save you. But if you do not seek after him and see Jesus as the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus is saying you will not see anything at all. Again, let's be clear, dear friends, the direct application of this passage. It's not for every one of us here today. Many of you have trusted in Jesus Christ, and by his grace, you've said, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. But you see, Jesus is speaking directly to the person who says, show me the evidence. Convince me. Show me a miracle, Jesus. Then maybe I'll believe. Testing God. To the many people who hear the gospel and and say the words and the works of Jesus are not enough for me. And you see, the application is this. Be warned. God has given a sign. It is the death and the resurrection of Jesus that is being proclaimed to you today. So seek after Christ, the wisdom of God in flesh. And ask God to give you the eyes to see the true light. Who is the light to everyone. His name, dear friends, is Jesus Christ. And please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ crucified and raised for sinners. Lord, we rejoice that the words and the work of Jesus are enough for our eternal salvation. Lord, we need nothing more. We don't need another sign. We don't need another miracle. And I pray that each and every one of us here today would seek after Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God incarnate, and that you might open all of our eyes to see the true light that has come into this world, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.